Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. When National Institute on Aging's Director of Health Policy Research, Dr. Samir Sinha, meets a new patient, they sometimes present overtreated, still on medications from a now resolved condition, or undertreated because their care provider might not have had any geriatrics training at all and just did not know how to help. When this happens, Dr. Sinha sees his job as helping the patient to regain goals and ground. Sadly, there's no treatment modality or pill for what threatens older Canadians the most, though. Ageism. Like older Canadians, millennials need some help with regaining goals and ground, too. According to Vaz Bednar, the executive director of the Master of Public Policy program at McMaster University and former chair of the federal government's expert panel on youth employment, millennials can only achieve two out of three lifetime goals. Home ownership, child care, or retirement. The lifetime hat trick enjoyed by previous generations is out of reach for them. One has to be given up on. And the pandemic is not helping. But if bad public policy has stacked the deck against the millennial generation, that means better policy can improve the odds. And while we may not be able to legislate ageism away, there are policy opportunities that can be pursued to improve the well-being of older Canadians too. Samir and Vaz give us their takes on the generation risk profiles of older Canadians and millennials and how we can improve them. I hope you dig what we have to say. Well, thank you for joining me, Dr. Sinha, and welcome to At Risk. Thanks for having me, Jody. Is ageism the greatest threat to older Canadians today? I think it is, because I think uh, when we think about ageism, it's that last acceptable form of discrimination that we have in our society. And when you start thinking about how it's so insidious in terms of uh, the responses we have in terms of how we decide uh, who gets care and, and what type of care they receive, uh, you start, or even how we even perceive an entire segment of our society, you realize that when you start thinking about a lot of the deficiencies we're thinking about uh, in terms of how we approach and even care for older Canadians, uh, you start realizing that at the heart of it, uh, of, a, of a lackluster response often is ageism. I couldn't help but think of ageism when I was reading um, the study uh, by your colleague, Dr. Nathan Stahl, um, around uh, the lives lost um, uh, due to uh, a slower-than-hoped uh, rollout of the vaccine to long-term care residents. No, absolutely. It's, it's one of those examples where when we think about the vaccine rollout, uh, and 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 the importance that in Ontario they've emphasized right from the beginning that uh, we're going to follow an ethical framework uh, because we really want to make sure we get it right. Uh, Ontario, like all the other provinces in Canada, uh, rightly prioritized uh, 
uh, older Canadians and especially those living in in long-term care homes as part of its you know initial prioritization group uh, and that made sense because when you think about when you're when you're vaccinating, why are you vaccinating? Well, you want to save lives. And if we want to save the most lives, we just need to look at who's dying. And and right now across Canada, 96% of the folks who've died have been older Canadians, you know, people older than 60. And two-thirds of them, over two-thirds have been those living in our long-term care homes. So it makes sense that if you have a limited amount of vaccine and you want to prevent uh, our hospital system from getting overwhelmed with people who are sick, um, who might end up in ICUs and might die, uh, when the majority of those people are older adults and those specifically living in long-term care, it makes sense that that's who you would vaccinate first. But the challenge we started seeing was that you know places like West Virginia, got it all sorted by December 30th. Everybody had their first dose in their 214 homes. Countries like Denmark and Israel were, were competing um, and, uh, and accomplished this by January 7th and 8th, uh, where they had their entire long-term care populations vaccinated with their limited amounts of vaccine, for example. But across Ontario, we just uh, started to see that our initial target was April. And then there was a whole challenge in terms of how are we going to get this vaccine into long-term care homes. And it was something that we just started seeing uh, problems with our, our response where other provinces by now today, you know, have actually already completed vaccinating their long-term care populations. And Ontario had still had a goal of set of, of about 20 days from now. There really weren't any barriers. Um, but really, when you start to see the fact that Ontario has had such a delayed approach in terms of vaccinating its most vulnerable, yet other provinces quickly figured this out. And, and I would say even truly in, in our premier's words moved heaven and earth to to get those populations vaccinated you're then left standing to say so why did we not get this done as quickly as the other provinces and i think this all comes back down to this notion of ageism that if we really did care about this population if we really did want to move heaven and earth, it wasn't that we had less vaccine per capita. We had more than enough um, by the end of December to actually accomplish this goal. So what was it that was holding us back from actually truly making this group a top priority rather than hearing about how we were now prioritizing speed over precision and 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 sadly, vaccinating people who aren't even frontline healthcare professionals within hospitals, uh, because really the goal was to try and perhaps embarrass the federal government by saying to them, we're not actually, you're not getting us vaccines quickly enough, when when in, in, in reality, they had sent more than enough vaccines to get this particular vulnerable population done. And so, you know, what was sad for me to see was that there was such a level of politicization um, around the vaccine rollout that I feel that, that and coupled with ageism, I think that's partly why uh, we saw that Ontario struggled. But I'm glad that with data and with evidence to say that whatever's going on is actually going to lead to more people dead. And the public outcry that's ensued has at least allowed the Ontario government to say, okay, we got this wrong. Um, we could do better. And we're making this our number one priority. And in fact, we're now going to try and get this, this, this goal accomplished 10 days earlier than, than, than we, than we set out. 
Uh, and I think that's a good thing, but it's sad that it took a lot of extra work from um, from many of my colleagues and myself um, to really kind of get the government moving in the direction it should have been all along if it did what the other provinces and frankly, what other countries were doing right from the beginning. It's such a great example of, you know, when we think about aging, um, we think about you know, the physiological changes that, that, that we're going to experience and how that uh, may make us more vulnerable. Um, but there's always, we, we live in, in environments and, and uh, our environments can exacerbate the, those vulnerabilities. Absolutely. And, and I, think, I think when we think about aging, uh, we have to remember that you know, that with time, you know, that, that, that aging really starts from the day you were born. I think a lot of people like to think that, you know, you don't age until you hit, uh, say this magical age of 65, but really aging starts right from day one and how it's important to realize that, yes, there are things that happen more as we age. And I, and I attribute that more to what I, I, I liken with my patients as mileage. Uh, when I had a 93 year old patient, for example, um, who started telling me that, uh, that her knee was starting to bother her. And she said, why is my knee bothering me? And I said, we have cars don't, don't even last, you know, 10 years. And you, you've been on that knee for 93 years going strong. Uh, and now you're wondering why it's not working so well. Well, you know, you've got your answer. And I always, I always joke with my patients and, and call it mileage, uh, because I think it's helpful to understand that with age, obviously there is wear and tear, um, that I think we can appreciate. I think as, as well that, 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 that as we have increasingly living to longer ages, we're realizing that if, you know, if a car accident doesn't get you at the age of 45, if, you know, if an early childhood cancer or other things kind of get you early, you're, you're going to keep making these milestones where you're, where you're outliving um, some of those potentially negative consequences that can happen early on. But, uh, but then you're living with consequences that, that will catch up to it that we don't actually have solutions for. Uh, and that can be an example of dementia. You know, dementia is something that's not really common to many of us in our 60s. Uh, but as we start reaching our 70s, our 80s, our 90s, uh, if uh, if diabetes and heart disease and other things don't get you, sadly, dementia becomes one of the leading causes of death for people in their 90s. So it's important to understand that, you know, that there are things that will happen to us that are related to how we age and uh and just by age alone and, and that normal wear and tear. But there are also other things that we do throughout our lifespan uh, that can influence how well we age. And so if we just stick with the with dementia, for example, there's good evidence to say that those who complete high school education and that importance of, of education uh, you know, for, for our youth is really important because the more educated we are, the, the less likelihood that we will develop dementia. The more we deal with uh, um, issues of hearing loss at a young age and, and later on in life, probably will liken the, the risk that we'll actually develop dementia. And then, and then certain things that we do, you know, exercise, uh, making sure our blood pressure or chronic diseases are under control, those sorts of things are also heavily correlated to us helping to keep a healthier brain and therefore protecting it from developing a dementia. And so it reminds us that there are actually things that we can do throughout our life course and, and across our lifespans that can actually enable us to live longer and healthier lives. And I think it's our job, really, as a society, 
and as individuals to make sure that we allow people to understand the choices that they make can be incredibly helpful beyond just their genetics alone. Um, and how do we as a society enable people to be able to make those healthier choices um, so that they can live longer and healthier and independent lives? I think that's something that all of us would benefit from uh, if uh, if we, we, we were set on that goal. I think that fact that, that you know, about 85% of our health is influenced by um, non-genetic factors, it, it, you know, causes some people to ask the question, have we over-medicalized aging? Yeah, in some aspects, you know, we can say that we have. I, I think the, the challenge that I often see in my role as a geriatrician is that I see, uh, I tend to see people, you know, in their later years of life who literally have, uh, have uh, been, uh, you know, over-medicalized, uh, but not necessarily, in, and, and certainly not in the right way, for example. I, I think it's complex because I, I see a combination of issues that happen that are somewhat rooted in ageism. Uh, the first part is I see a lot of undertreatment. And I think a lot of undertreatment occurs because a lot of doctors, first of all, in Canada don't get any formal training in geriatrics. Uh, so they don't appreciate how uh, treating cancer in a, in a, in a 50 year old is very different from treating cancer in, in an 80 year old. Um, and sometimes people actually um, just assume that an older person would not be a good candidate for treatment and so doesn't even offer them treatment when they really would be a good candidate. Um, and then to the other extreme, sometimes when people don't have that, that additional training and that insight, they might actually prescribe and treat people as if they were a 40-year-old as opposed to if they were an 80-year-old in, in that way. And so I think understanding that there's a huge level of heterogeneity amongst our older population and that you can't just define a person's healthcare based on their age, but also how they look and 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 how healthy they are all of a sudden you start realizing the nuances of aging and how often what i do see is a lot of people who come to me who have been overly medicalized um, they're still on treatments for issues that are no longer active issues um, they may be undertreated for other issues for example and often you know i'm sitting there kind of learning now and putting together the 90 year story to then figure out really who they are what matters most and then and really, how, how do you actually right-size a series of treatments uh, so that they can actually stay healthy and independent? And when you do that, you often find that people end up needing to be on less medications. Um, and you often see a lot of lost opportunities along the way to deal with things more proactively or comprehensively that could, that could have allowed a different outcome to have transpired. Uh, so it's not always a hopeless and fruitless task. Often I can help people get back on their feet and, and, and regain some goals and ground. Uh, but often we see uh, that opportunity that could start so much better um, if, we, if we did a better job of, of educating our healthcare professionals in caring for, in, in the care of older adults, but also, you know, better engaged uh, individuals themselves so that they know that as they age, there are different things they can do, no matter how old they are, to help them stay healthy and independent as well. Is there a role for technology in mitigating some of our risks of aging? It seems like there's a technological solution to so many things. Is there one here? I think there's lots of ways in which we can think about uh, technology and uh, 
and 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 how we can actually engage with it. I think uh, you know we're now in a new um, you know kind of era where you know we we now often hear that phrase. There's an app for that, right? So that you know it really that there's some problem technical innovation that can that can deal with whatever our issues are. Um, and I think a lot of us are just we're just interested in frankly having a quick fix. Sometimes we're not interested in doing the deeper and heavier work that may be required. And so if there's a, a pill or if there's a, a, a technology that can solve an issue, uh, we're, we're, we're maybe quicker to, um, to endorse that, for example, than, than the reality of the hard work that sometimes needs to occur. The, the challenge is, is that when you're trying to think about technologies or apps or things to solve issues of aging, we realize that this is a very heterogeneous population that often um, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't look the same by any means, and therefore will respond very differently and, and needs very customized approaches. Uh, so I think when we start thinking about technologies, we have to understand what problem are you trying to solve and, and who are you trying to solve it for? And could this actually make things easier? Or could it complicate the picture? But, you know, I think, I think the opportunity to have certain technologies like I'd say a personal emergency response system. So, you know, people know about these things as like lifelines, for example. Um, sometimes people say, you know, do, you know, how can that be helpful? And I'm like, yeah, it can be because for some people it gives them peace of mind. If it's an older person who's living on their own and they're really worried about being in a situation where if, if they fell or something happened and they needed help, how would they get that help to them? Well, this, this can actually not only give them peace of mind, but it could also potentially save their lives. It could also give their families a, a greater sense of uh, peace of mind and that knowing that their loved one has access to a technology that can help them feel more comfortable and, and enable them to live um, more independently. And so that's an example of a, of a wide, um, widely available technology that I think people are are becoming more interested in in getting to kind of help be uh, an enabler, but I think when we start thinking about apps and 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 other forms of technology, even even just actually having access to a smartphone, we realize that these can all be incredibly useful, especially you know with the virtualization of care um, and and the need to be using more mobile technologies during the pandemic. These can all be useful, but they're only so useful is if they're actually solving the issues that we need them to solve. And that frankly, that, that older people know how to use these and, and can find them useful for themselves as well. And I think that's where it's not an issue of the technology being the problem. It's actually the adoption that people haven't thought about um, or have necessarily supported as well. How important is housing policy to supporting Canadians aging well and safely? I think housing's become a real uh, important paradigm for people to think about from a few different ways. When we think about a good housing policy at, you know, at the national level or 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 more locally, uh, we need to think about a number of different things. You know, one we have to think about affordability. Uh, so that we have to remember that uh, that uh, you know when you think about the average you know payouts that come from our our government assistance programs and our, our entitlement programs such as um, Canada Pension plan, you know, guaranteed income supplement, old age security, you're still talking about 
um, you're 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 not talking about you know the average Canadian being rich, for example. They're they're certainly having a limited income that they can count on as they age, uh, and and it's great because we get you know pretty much most older Canadians above the poverty line, but not that far above it, especially if they don't have other other forms of income coming in uh, to support them um, in their retirement, for example. And so this is where we have to appreciate that. Uh, that the majority of Canadians who are retiring are not retiring with an additional workplace pension plan. And it's staggering when you realize that the average Canadian retiring without a workplace pension plan is only retiring with about $3,000 in the bank. So then you start realizing that, okay, well, affordability is a huge issue when it comes to housing policy. Because if you're a renter and those rents keep going up and up and up, for example, uh, then how can you afford to kind of live continue to live in the communities that you've been living in for so long. How do we think about the housing that you're in and how accessible it is? Um, and is it going to remain accessible for you as you age, for example, as stairs become more difficult to navigate? Or you have to start using mobility devices like wheelchairs or walkers, where older homes might have much more narrow or hallways or doorways, for example, that don't allow you to fit those pieces of, of key equipment that allow you to remain in home um, in place, for example? Um, how do we allow people to adapt their environments, for example, um, to allow them to, to age in place and to be able to afford those particular renovations? And how do we think about making sure that when we're building um, building um, housing uh, for older Canadians, for example, um, or that might be dedicated, that it's not um, isolated somewhere um, away from everything else, but it's more front and center, for example, um, with good access to transit and, and other connections so that people can actually stay uh, connected to their communities. And then finally, when you think about housing for older adults living in more congregate settings, I think this pandemic in particular has really raised a lot of the deficiencies, you know, of our of our housing in in many um, in many provinces across the country. When we realize that um, some people are living in 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 homes that are fifty or or or, or fifty years or or older, if you will, um, and uh, and that these are often older, crowded homes that don't really help um, with uh, infection control. In fact, make things a lot worse. Uh, and when you think about uh, the revelation that many older homes in Ontario and Quebec, for example, don't even have air conditioning in, in resident rooms, for example, uh, you start realizing that we're actually, you know, sadly condemning people, older Canadians who need to live in the long-term care setting, to live in what we would consider substandard housing, uh, to meet their basic care and, 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 and other needs. So all of these things are really important when you start thinking about a good housing policy that makes sure that you can actually enable people to live as long as possible where they want to be, um, and that and that's everything from making sure that that housing is accessible, um, that housing is well located, so that people are not isolated but really are integrated as part of their communities, that it's affordable, and then frankly, it's safe. And I think these are the things that we need to think about when we're thinking about risk as it's related to housing policy as well. Yeah, I think listeners might be surprised to to learn, um, uh, first off, that in general, uh, older adults consistently experience the greatest proportion of ca casualties during and after emergencies in Canada. But that number only goes up when you look at um, 
older Canadians living in congregate care settings. I think people appreciate, okay, congregate care, a contagious disease, you're living closer together. Um, so, so that increases the risk. But really, the, the risks of living in congregate care, um, they're not limited to contagious diseases. I was just really surprised to look at that uh, report coming out of the National Institute on Aging that highlighted how living in congregate care during an emergency really elevates your your risk of, of a terrible outcome. Yeah, and it's and it's very important to realize. I mean, this this work that we did in partnership uh, with the Red Cross uh, and and both uh, you know Canadian Red Cross, and then pre- prior to this, I did I led the work for the American Red Cross, and it really symbolized the fact that we're not just talking about things that happen during pandemics, but if you think of everything from fires or floods or or heat waves and other things, for example, um, that there are many things that make older people particularly vulnerable um, during any of these types of emergencies um, or, 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 or pandemics, if you will, um, and how often we see that older adults are, are you know, often face casualties because, uh, you know, that these are individuals who have um, specific needs that we need to make sure that we're better meeting, such as how do you continue the, um, their chronic disease management? How do you make sure that you can help someone um, evacuate safely and effectively? Um, how do we make sure that the home is itself is designed um, to be able to deal more effectively with a a variety of types of emergencies uh, that can occur. And so that's why we came up with 29, you know, evidence-informed recommendations with expertise from uh, from key individuals and organizations to really help create an agenda that could allow us to think about how do we how do we think about how do we empower individuals and their caregivers? How do we think about our healthcare workforce? How do we think about the facilities, but also the policies that we actually uh, enable as as um, as a government and as society to really better support older adults, especially in the face of emergencies? Given that they always tend to, you no know, matter you name the emergency, and generally. Older adults are disproportionately the ones who um, um, are impacted and unfortunately represent the majority of the deaths that occur. And some of the challenges are structural, of course, because we can have well-designed congregate care settings. We can even um, adopt policies that um, allow people to remain in their homes uh, for longer periods of time. But I was just reading, so right now there's about 3.6 workers per individual over 65 in 2020. In 20 years, and of course, this is a very relevant stat for myself, in 20 years, uh, that number will decrease to 2.5 workers per person over 65. You know, we need, uh, you know, with the greatest tech, with well-designed homes with or, or well-designed congregate care settings, you know, we still need people and there aren't any technologies on the horizon that are going to um, eliminate the role of carers and caring. So, uh, you know, it, it just strikes me, how, how do we try and find solutions to, to a problem that seems a bit structural? 
Yeah, it's structural in the sense that when you think about our declining birth rate as well, I think a lot of people, you know, realize that with with um, many people having less likely to have children today, for example, that we know by 2050, we'll have one third uh, less family caregivers, if you will, around uh, to provide support to older family members and friends. And so if we were just to ask the current kind of level, if we just wanted the current level of family caregiving to occur, which saves tens of billions of dollars in public funding every year uh, from that unpaid care that's provided, we would need the remaining um, caregiving group that's available in 2050 just to increase their productivity by 40%. But when you realize that one third of working Canadians currently is also balancing unpaid caregiving duties, uh, you start realizing very quickly that um, thinking about our aging population, uh, you can easily start thinking it immediately as a challenge and saying, my goodness, you know, they, they, that, uh, that uh, this population will bankrupt us. And we use these terms like dependency ratios and other things. But I think this is where we just have to be a lot smarter and we can think about the opportunities here. Because frankly, if we actually build systems that can more efficiently provide support and care, um, that's one way to kind of um, help solve that, that gap that could affect, you know, working Canadians and, and unpaid caregivers and, and, and individuals themselves. But also if we start thinking about ways in which we can help more older Canadians living, you know, able to live more independent and healthy lives for as long as possible, that would be great. And when we also think about the labor shortages that we're going to have in future, this is where we can think about, you know, positive immigration strategies uh, that that can help us to grow and 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 continue to build you know our population and have the right mix of 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 um of uh, a few Canadians that can really help us to kind of meet you know some of our our the challenges ahead and I think I think these are the, the ways that I would want to look at it, because I also think that, that since we ended mandatory retirement just over 10 years ago in Canada, we have many Canadians who are still wanting to stay um, in the workplace. I, the number of people who are staying in the workplace beyond the age of 65 has massively increased. And that's a good thing because we have more people who want to contribute and we should allow them to contribute as well, um, because that really supports the overall economic productivity of our country. And so I think by, again, back to where we started with our conversation about how much does ageism underlie so many of our, our bad decisions, if you will, I think when we think about older people as dependents and kind of a drain on the system, I think we're forgetting that when increasing numbers of of older adults, you know, are are remaining in the workplace. They provide the vast majority of unpaid childcare in our country, for example, mm. that allows many of us to go to work, for example. Um, and when we start realizing that when they turn 65, they don't get a pass on paying taxes. No, they'll continue to pay taxes right till the day they die, which then fuels our economy. Oh, and by the way, they are also spending money too. Um, we start realizing that when we start thinking about older Canadians as a resource, a resource to be valued, a resource to be supported, um, then I think that starts to help frame, you know, what really can be seen as an opportunity rather than a challenge. And, and I think that allows us to more focus on the solution rather than the problem. And in terms of those solutions um, and to wrap up our conversation, what do you think is the single most important policy shift that all of us who've been sitting and, you know, frankly, watching in horror what's happening in, in long-term care homes and, and 
you know, uh, worrying about our, our neighbors and our family members, what what should we most be advocating for to uh, to the various levels of government? So, I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, when you say what's the one thing, I, I would say that, you know, I'm still, I'm so bothered by the fact that, you know, we do not actually have a national senior strategy. You know, we, we, we have a national dementia strategy and we have other national strategies that focus on things, but aging is one of the greatest challenges and opportunities we have together as a country. And, and through the work that I've been doing with, you know, many organizations and through our nationals on aging, we've, we've developed, you know, a framework for an, a national senior strategy, and one that we think really can help give the government, um, our federal government, in, in partnership with the provinces and territories, that overall focus that thinks about a lot of these different issues we've just discussed, but in a holistic and a strategic place that places Canada in a, in a, in a better state. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for helping us to flip our thinking on aging and to uh, adopt a more proactive and and meaningful uh, strategy towards uh, supporting all older Canadians, uh, particularly as we'll all hopefully find ourselves there one day. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jody. Thank you for joining me, Vaz, and welcome to At Risk. Thanks for having me. So according to a StatsCan report from December 2020, on intergenerational comparisons of household economic well-being, the well-being of millennials may be more at risk relative to older generations due to the pandemic. How can that possibly be true? I mean, I think what the report mostly points to is the labor disruption in retail and service. So kind of pointing to that younger generations, you know, plural, tend to be clustered um, tend to be clustered in those areas of work where we saw the kind of sharpest, uh, I'll say, retraction or kind of we've pressed pause the longest. But I think another dimension that comes through in that report is the role of home ownership in economic stability and achieving net worth. And it's not something that's explicit in terms of the, the headlines in the report year over year, but you do see it um, when you see that asset class kind of kind of broken down. Um, I have a couple of other quick ideas too on that. You know, another is the um, additional kind of extra life stage that millennials are sort of credited with carving out, right? Early adulthood. So not migrating just from the family home to a new family home, you know, getting married later, if at all. Um, And that also affects resilience to large economic shocks, especially given something like the singles premium, which is difficult to have show up in in surveys like this by Statistics Canada. But that's another reality of the younger generation. They're living independently for longer than any previous generation did. And that's expensive. It's interesting. So I spoke earlier with Dr. Samir Sinha, and I asked him in terms of older Canadians, you know, does it just really come down to housing policy? I mean, we talk about a lot of things, but but is it fundamentally a housing policy problem? Hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> I want to know what he said. I think, you know, is it a housing problem? I think we we get we're focused on comparing people, 
you know, year over year, generation against generation. And that's a great starting point for these policy conversations. But I often wonder if, you know, the two categories we're really talking about are people who are homeowners and people who are not homeowners. Because even in that home ownership category, I think an elephant in a, in a policymaking room is how strongly intergenerational wealth transfer factors into who a first-time homebuyer is, right? So you kind of see it out in the open in like weird ways. Um, sorry that this is a Toronto reference, but like Toronto Life will profile a young couple and it's like, they're doing a house hunt. They had a $200,000 gift, you know, from their parents, which is on the one hand fantastic. And I don't want to suggest that intergenerational intergenerational wealth transfer is historically new by any means or that it shouldn't be permitted it's not new it's part of life but if it's the primary if not only way that people can make can people can enter the housing market that's a problem um a national bank recent national bank report suggests that um in you need to make one hundred and seventy-eight thousand dollars and actually four hundred and ninety-nine so let's call it one hundred and seventy-eight and five hundred uh, dollars annually and save for 289 months, which is 24 years to accumulate the down payment for a house. So it's kind of a farce to tell people just keep saving more and you'll, you'll achieve, achieve this thing. And if I could say one more thing, um, it's somewhat cruel, but I think it's true. I think, I think what my generation faces um, if you're lucky, you get to pick two of the following three. Like if you're really lucky and privileged, um, you can pick two of a house, retirement and childcare. And it feels increasingly common that if you own a house and you're saving enough for retirement, you cannot afford childcare. If you are renting and saving enough for retirement, you can maybe afford childcare, but not down payment on a house. Um, again, and if you are paying your mortgage and paying for childcare, there's not a lot extra left for retirement. So in terms of risk and the bargain that young people are, the trade-offs rather that young people are facing today, I, I do think that puts you know the future economy at risk. It also puts their ability to retire at huge risk. There's not a lot of optimistic things written um, about the prospects of, you know, mm. for, for, for the millennial generation. But, but, no. but one of the, the more hopeful things, even though it was sort of damning a lot of prior policy choices, but the comment was this. Mm -hmm. Bad policy choices have put millennials in this position. And at the very least, that means better policy decisions can get them out of it. What, what, what would those better policies potentially be that, that could possibly put, you know, kind of restore the childcare, a home and retirement back on the radar for this generation? I mean, childcare and pharmacare, I think pharmacare is something that is really appealing across generations. I think something I admire about the millennial generation is their ability to use the language of labor to describe a lot of what previously was viewed as leisure, if that makes sense, right? You know, house, housework is work. Childcare, this is a form of work um, and it's expensive and either you have to do it or, you know, you're hiring people to do it. Um, 
The other source of optimism from a policy perspective, I think, is just we're having more of a common realization of the kind of, quote unquote, millennial realism, right? That there are structural factors impacting this generation's uh, apparent failure to meet some of the expected benchmarks of middle class adulthood. Um, the challenges are not as as pronounced, not as dire as millennials in the United States of America. So certainly in Canada, we can celebrate that, but it doesn't mean that there's not more work to do. Um, and, you know, maybe there has to be more exploration. My understanding from a student loan forgiveness perspective is that Canada lacks some of the programs or options that exist in the United States, right? For instance, like going into a particular private uh, public sector jobs and then having your student loans forgiven, etc. We haven't really played around with that here. I'm not sure why that is, but that could be that could be a powerful intervention too. Yeah, and student loan debt is you know, I think it like is second after a mortgage debt. Mm. If you're able, if you're lucky and yeah, if you're lucky enough to get that mortgage debt, that's fast. Isn't that fascinating though, right? Because doesn't it suggest, isn't there a world where we're like, how are you putting a down payment on a house when you're also perpetuating a student loan? And we know that those student loans, uh, you know, somewhat perpetuate themselves by just inflating over time. Um, yeah, but absolutely. I mean, top issues for millennials in Canada and elsewhere, politically, affordable housing, jobs, affordability of, of PSE, and uh, surprisingly, healthcare uh, across the US and, and Canada. The other, you know, piece about this generation is, you know, the ongoing erosion of work, more part-timeism, more short-term contracts, um, more entrepreneurship, more self-employment, um, and more, you know, I'll, I'll use that term gig, more gig, uh, employment. So what some of those, you know, our traditional data collection vehicles, and it's no disrespect to StatsCan, because obviously I'm a, I'm a StatsCan stan, and I would buy the book bag if they had it. Um, you know, it just doesn't come through because we still actually, we, we look at that income as that extra line on your tax return, other income. And, you know, you don't know if that's honorariums for public speaking, um, delivering Uber Eats, babysitting, you know, a garage sale, it kind of all gets lumped in together. So we have these supplementary surveys, but we, we don't have a more fulsome picture of, you know, what is the, the portfolio of income sources for young people. This survey looks at it as kind of salary, um, investments, and essentially like property equity, right? But of those, you know, not, not everyone in that generation has just one job or one salary. Um, and that's another factor that affects future risk, satisfaction, um, burnout, you know, anxiety, mental health. Um, there are a lot of ramifications of that new world of work as liberating and as, as exciting as it can be for some people. That's not necessarily the case for everyone. And like, I do, I do get anxious about a millennial retirement crisis. Mm. Yeah. There, 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 there's a few things there that, that, that I want to pick up on. I think one is, you know, I, I often say my, my parents had such a, a clear vision for me and my brother, you know, they were like, go to university, go for as long as you can, (laughs) 
do well and it's all going to be fine. You know, that, that just didn't pan out necessarily for millennials. I think, I think the advice got perpetuated, but the payoff just, just, it hasn't been the same for, for millennials in part because of the recession, but, but other factors too. Yeah, in part because of the recession. I mean, the expansion of, of post-secondary makes you wonder whether it, it, it is still that kind of um, ticket to the middle class, for lack of a better phrase. But I think coupled with how, how work is changing, different expectations around skills and training. You know, from the 2008 recession, we saw that um, um, experience was inflated in job titles. Uh, job applications. So suddenly entry-level jobs, you know, we talk about this trope, it's become so common, but entry-level jobs, okay, we're looking for someone with like five years experience. And I graduated into that recession. And I remember thinking when I'm, I was applying to jobs and I applied to a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs. Wow. I don't even have five years of experience being in my twenties. Like, how am I going to get any experience? That's like hyper-traditional full-time work experience. That's not research, you know, part-time research or like a summer job. Um, and it's freaky. And another way that work is changing that we don't always talk about is the algorithmic governance of work, right? So let's think about generational differences. Okay. The labor market got digitized. That's historically new. And that's fascinating because in theory, that should create more opportunity and kind of equity for that opportunity. You can search for a job Sunday night on your couch, in your sweatpants, drinking a beer, you know, optional, beer's optional. But it also floods, you know, those, those startup and startup, I don't mean private sector startup, but those, those um, early career jobs with a very high volume of applicants, which perversely means that we privilege social capital arguably more than ever in the labor market, right? Referrals matter so much. Hey, do you know anyone? And again, not historically new, not that different, but more pronounced in a way that's really worthy of our interrogation. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that we need to, you know, re-govern the digital labor market by algorithms because they already are kind of screening people in and out, um, sometimes discriminating against, uh, you know, who sees a job ad. We see that with Facebook. But if we don't talk about it and study it in a policy context around understanding the labor market today, I think we do all Canadians a disservice. Yes. And I think, you know, um, the the digitization of the economy in general, you know, coupled with wage, with wage stagnation is also a problem, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's one of those things that, um, uh, isn't isn't a government policy, but it needs a policy response. Exactly, exactly. I like how you framed that. It's not public policy, but it needs a policy response. Absolutely. You know, I don't know if you um, had come across uh, um, Anne Helen Peterson's book. Um, it's called "Can't Even." Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I, I follow her on Twitter, and I, I love I love her Twitter feed. Um, uh, but you know what? What that you know, what, what her book and, you know, the original um, BuzzFeed News article really speaks to is, you know, I guess, I guess the, the, the emotional and mental health impact of this always on economy and this idea of, you know, um, this kind of Silicon Valley uh, 
application to oneself, you know, well, you know, just move quickly and break things. Okay, but you're talking about a person. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not talking about an algorithm and just how over time it just, uh, it, it, it burned her out and, and, you know, little tasks became difficult. And um, what, what I thought was interesting, and once again, it brings sort of this government policy response back into the, to the discussion, you know, it's the realization that, you know, things like wage stagnation, um, you know, housing policy, all these things are systemic issues that can't be solved mm-hmm. by oneself. But, 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 but we keep preaching, you know, sort of the entrepreneurial you ink to, to solve these things and hence the burnout. <laughs> Hence the burnout. I mean, I I definitely read Can't Even. I remember that viral essay very well. Uh, I appreciated too how she points to like the labor of life and also, you know, this 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 tilting or inclination to monetize the self, right? That your that you know spare time evaporates. There's no true leisure, not because of the confetti time that we also talk about, but because you know, could you be? Um, monetizing your blog or getting sponsored on a post or, you know, chasing kind of virtual social capital that might lead to some kind of other opportunity. Yeah, I think that's important for this generation too, because of the, well, the need, maybe the need or the drive to supplement income. On the other hand, you could view it as somewhat of a positive in that there are gig like jobs that have pretty low barriers to entry that can help people you know, save for a special occasion or, or pay off debt or, you know, have some cash coming in while they're looking for another, for a different, more traditional job. And like, again, in a historical context, that's, that's, that's somewhat novel. It's interesting. I think previously it would be through temp agencies, but now that the the phone can be that vehicle. Yeah. And, and Helen Peterson's work, you know, important. And I'm sure people in other generations can, can somewhat um, relate to that. Um, but it's certainly uniquely the most pronounced and the most explored for millennials. And maybe just to point to Gen Z, not the core part of our interview, but there is something freaky about the thought of a generation that has grown up in a winner take all digital economy, right? If you've come of age on the internet following your favorite like YouTubers, right? And now you're seeing people in TikTok houses, mansions, you know, what is that, what messages is that internalizing about how, how a life and how lifestyle can be monetized in ways that are unrealistic and in ways that might cost people money, you know, aspiring to achieve that or mimic that, um, it's not something I've studied in debt, but back to my like many anxieties, that is one too. It's, it's novel. Um, but it might also mean that this generation is even better at organizing online and sharing information online. And like, that gives me optimism too. Yeah. So, so, so when I was kind of thinking about that burnout, I, I started to feel guilty because I was like, no, Ooh. well, I felt guilty because it's like, so, so many times, you know, when when I'm in a policy discussion, when I need to, you know, turn to a more optimistic note because I'm going down some dark rabbit hole of like, yeah, no, we're all going to die. I'm like, but you know, millennials, 
Gen Z. Like they're going to save us because they have such great values and they're so networked and they, they understand that there's a climate emergency and, you know, they're, they're going to move us to act. But it it occurred to me as, you know, as I was reading, you know, the, the stories of burnout that it's like, oh my God, now I'm lumping, you know, all of the world's problems on this generation too to solve. (laughs) I mean, that's, I think that's a good, a good thing to acknowledge. I mean, maybe what we can credit that or this generation with is even just the language of burnout or the conversations people have been having during the pandemic about their own, you know, mental health, about their own bandwidth limitations around pushing for better separation of work and life and more flexibility with work that has been somewhat forced by the pandemic, but I think will be, you know, a lasting effect in terms of jobs that can be virtual. And that's a that's a cause for optimism as well, right? The the toolkit and the language and the recognition, just ask, you know, asking people how they're doing and 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 being being mindful and being flexible is is powerful. Um, so that work isn't a you know a pantomime of pure productivity. <laughs> um so the central question of this podcast is um if you're not thinking about how you could lose something, do you truly value it? So I put that question to you and and uh, just uh, welcome your feedback. You can take it in any direction you want to go. If I'm not worried, I'll lose something. Can I care about it? Well, I think that for many, if not most millennials, achieving economic stability and the kind of comfort and calm associated with that has been elusive, too elusive, and may continue to be. Again, I don't know how connected that is to home ownership. I don't know that home ownership is necessarily the solution, but I think we can look at past generations and and see that housing, especially coupled with a post-secondary education, was was a was a ticket, was an assurance of a of a particular kind of stability that too many young people, again, don't or cannot enjoy. And that leads to the burnout too. When you're on different contracts, if you're not receiving benefits, it's difficult to plan a life. It's difficult to build those great money-saving habits. Forget forget investments, right? You know, just basic saving um, becomes that much harder. And it's, again, structural. It's not that we need more financial Education necessarily, though education is always important and complementary, and I do not mean to discount it. Um, so yes, I think that even if you personally, and I don't mean you, you, I mean like me, like even if I, you know, personally can maybe have a if my if my life is a little bit different or a little bit more stable, I think I am still able to. Uh, empathize, sympathize, have anxiety, look at the numbers and really think about what it means for, for my peers, my peers in Canada. You know, it's funny, I, I wrote the question, you know, of the podcast, I've been talking to people about it, but what our conversation really brought home for me, um, that, that, that hasn't, you know, really occurred to me before is that, with the push and pull of the of the attention con- attention economy and you know it pulls you in one direction and we talk about the things we focus on and how you know they might not 
be healthy. They may be taking us down, you know, dark populist paths. But but we don't talk often about sort of the opportunity cost. So yes, it's bad. Maybe some of the things we're looking at, but 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 what aren't we looking at <laughs> when we're looking at those other things? And I think that does go to the central question of the podcast. You know, can you know, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you can lose it? Well, if you're thinking about all these other things that are pinging you all the time, maybe it's hard to even figure out what you value. Yeah, I mean, it 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 could be difficult to hone in on what specifically you value and. Also, it's hard to imagine the implications of goals that are deferred, right? I mean, we talked to the goal about the goal of home ownership, but parenthood could just as easily be viewed as a goal. Um, you know, people delaying parenthood is sometimes studied in some kind of a curious way, and it's really important for the economy that we, you know, keep that reproduction rate wherever we want it to be as we complement our population growth with great immigration policies. But I think we could sort of get to see a crisis in that regard too, that will partially be the function of the economy people are living in and the support that they're able to access or not, which does also go back to the role of family, this invisible role of family in, in maybe providing free childcare or providing that, um, down payment or, you know, we've ridiculed millennials for living at home with their parents longer, right? But from a public policy perspective, that's actually pretty great. Like if your parents live in an area near university, seriously, but that's one of those things. We can't make it a public policy. We can't say like, you know, try to live like rent is, you know, rent in these big cities when you're just starting out is a lot. Try to live with, you know, roommates are not a public policy. Living with family is not a public policy, but we see in the data that people that have that opportunity it is a privilege of sorts it's not it's not laziness it's quite savvy so lots of challenges but then that means there's lots of policy opportunities if if i'm hearing you correctly housing child care even pharmacare right it, it it's a lot easier um you probably will suffer less burnout in the gig economy if you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for you know life-sustaining medications exactly and just knowing that if you need to access medication like that, that you'll, you'll have the supports you need, um, be they coming from an employer or, you know, in partnership with the pharmacy or just with the pharmacy. Absolutely. I mean, look, we've been waiting for our public policies to be totally revolutionized by millennials. We keep pointing to them, I think, not to be obsessed with 2008, but often in 2008, we're like, millennials move the needle. Like, whoa, watch out. Here they come. Um, but I think we have yet to see our kind of policy packages truly reflecting the needs of a generation that, again, has different family structures, delays family structures, um, really struggles from a housing perspective, and has so much uncertainty uh, on the horizon while they're trying to gain valuable experiences. And as you said, right, mission-driven, focused on making a dent and also wanting to change the world. Um, so how do all those things happen? I'll, I'll, I'll end by being optimistic. I can totally find some optimism. Um, and I'm glad for this study and I'm so glad for the opportunity to think through it from a risk perspective with you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You've caused me to think differently about a question that I've been already thinking about for, for months and that's a really enriching experience. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure.